Well, good morning. And uh, what you saw was kind of an overview of what our team does in Portugal. When we first arrived in Portugal, there were not other uh, missionaries with the Evangelical Free Church of America. We were the first. But God has now uh, brought together a small team, and that just gives you a, an idea about some of the ministries that we had through our small team. As the video um, uh, said, I don't know if it was explicit to you, but when Jonathan said one or two out of every hundred people would, be, would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, so that's about one percent, one, two percent of the population. So the need is great for evangelism, for church planting, for uh, discipleship, for preparing people for ministry. And that's our primary responsibility. We serve at the Portuguese Bible Institute, and we have served there for almost 22 years now. And a big thank you to all of you, because Bethlehem Church has stood with us through that whole time, and a little bit before, even before we went to the field. And we appreciate that so much, all those years of helping us financially, helping us through your prayers. We do have a, a table in the entryway of the church where you can uh, see more things about our ministry. Some literature is back there about our personal ministry and also about opportunities with, the, with Reach Global, which is the mission arm of the Evangelical Free Church of America. So be sure to stop by. And uh, we've been delighted to talk to you. Um, and uh, also about opportunities. You may be interested in opportunities long-term, short-term, uh, medium-term. Nowadays, you can do almost anything and serve the Lord in uh, missions. We have back there also our prayer card. Feel free to take one of these. Put it up on your refrigerator and pray for me that I'll stick with my diet. Good place to put it. And uh, I know that also, I believe that your offering today will be focusing on the crisis response um, uh, arm of the Evangelical Free Church of America and how we can help people in practical ways. And I just wanted to highlight that back on our table as well, we have this little... Um, uh, blurb about what the crisis response team is, is doing, and you may be interested in seeing a little bit of that as well. Um, so uh, the Lord is blessing. We've had a challenging year in a number of ways, but we are so grateful that the Lord is blessing the ministry. Uh, one of the things that we are seeing, we are seeing uh, positive signs uh, nowadays of the evangelical church working together because there are a lot of denominations there, Protestant denominations that have come in with missionaries to do their thing. And unfortunately, historically, everybody has done their own thing. But now we're seeing tremendous signs of working together, a great desire to get the gospel out there and to plant churches and to uh, disciple believers so that they can mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your continued prayers. This past uh, spring, something historical happened also in Portugal. 
the Billy Graham Association came. Uh, in this case, it was Franklin Graham that came to preach the gospel, and they held their crusades right in the city of Lisbon. They rented out a large facility, and it went well. The facility was full uh, each session. I think they had probably three or four different sessions over two days, and there were apparently good responses to the gospel. I say apparently because time will tell, right? And we have to follow up on these uh, cases and see uh, who is really genuine in their desire to follow Jesus Christ. But one of the things that is uh, interesting to me and uh, I think is a word of thanksgiving is that finally the evangelical church was able to come together its various parts and support an event like this. Because uh, back some uh, maybe uh, 25 years ago, the Billy Graham Association made an attempt to come to Portugal, but they canceled their trip because there was not a grassroots support. And they are committed, the Billy Graham Association, if we're going to go into a place, we need the local churches to support this because we understand there needs to be follow-up that takes place after our crusade. So thanks be to God, finally, now the Billy Graham Association was able to come in, and I believe it probably had an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for that. So my topic for you today, as you were able to see in your bulletin, is what does a model church look like? That's pretty ambitious. I, uh, at the school, the Portuguese Bible Institute, I'm assistant director working with a Portuguese national director and also professor. And one of the subjects that I teach is the nature and purpose of the local church. And we think together all the time as with the students. So when you go out, how will you evaluate your ministry? What should the local church look like? And I feel like, you know, we're, we're, in a way, we're always running after the next big thing. And Portugal's no better because we look outside of ourselves, like either to America, where everything's always happening big, and, or Brazil, which is also where the church is growing pretty rapidly. And we try to import things, models and different styles of doing ministry, and we assume that certain things um, mean that we're successful or that it's successful in America or in Brazil or wherever the case might be. And we have interesting ways of evaluating church, don't we? Uh, some people evaluate the success of the church based on the preaching ministry. How good is the preacher? And then we like to go home and we roast the preacher while we're eating lunch. You know, that type of thing. Uh, so some people are convinced about that. Other people are convinced is the number of programs that the church has that equals success in its ministry. Some people understand it's the number of people that you have in your church filling the pews. And I'm not saying that these things may not have some implications but my question is, when God is examining his church, when Jesus Christ, as Lord of the church, looks at the church, what is it that he is looking for? It's interesting that in the New Testament, there's only one church that's referred to as 
a model church. I don't know if you realize that, and that church is the church in Thessalonica that was a very young church. And uh, we can go ahead and put up the, uh, the reference we'll be looking at is 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10, but I have a couple of maps to show you just to orient you about where Thessalonica is. So on here you can see way up at the top in the middle of the screen in a section called Macedonia, Paul crossed over, went to Philippi first, and then down to Thessalonica, where he stayed a very, very short time. Uh, this was on his second missionary journey. And uh, you can read the story, if you want to, later on, the historical account in Acts chapter 17. Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue over three Sabbath days. So it's possible that the Apostle Paul was there for a month, and then he suddenly had to leave the city because of the persecution that was stirred up against him. Many of the Gentiles responded to the gospel, and some Jews, but many of the Jewish people, because of envy, were stirred up against the Apostle Paul and persecuted Paul and his team. And he had to flee, and he continued down to Berea and Athens and Corinth, um, and what we'll find out is that Paul actually continued his journey for a while alone because he was concerned about the church. And any of us would be. You know, you plan a church, you get it started, and only after a month you have to leave the town. And so Paul was quite concerned for the people. The next map shows you how strategically located this city was. These are some modern names here, but you can see, even in ancient times, this is called the Via Ignatia, there was a road that went from a Roman road all the way uh, from Rome all the way across the eastern part of the empire, which we understand as Istanbul now. But there you see in the middle Thessalonica one more time. Very strategically located, but like any metropolitan city, where people are coming and going, you can imagine there's all sort of belief, religious belief, there's corruption, there's immorality. And so when Paul left this fledgling group, he was anxious. He was preoccupied with their state. And he thought all along the journey, and you can read this in this uh, short letter for yourself, Paul is emotionally worked up about it. He's thinking the whole time, how are they doing? Are they able to withstand the pressure? Has Satan gotten to them? Has our work been in vain? And so Paul was so concerned, he sent Timothy, who was part of his group, his missionary team, he sent his trusted co-worker, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to check things out. And Paul stayed in Athens alone all by himself, which was also a difficult experience. And Paul, I can just imagine that Paul, while he's ministering in Athens, he has a lot of unrest in his heart, and he's thinking the whole time, how, I, I'm very concerned, how are they doing? Finally, and we can imagine this takes some time, because uh, Timothy couldn't jump on American Airlines and go from one city to the other. So Timothy finally comes back and meets with Paul, 
And he says to Paul, Paul, guess what? They are doing remarkably. And he tells Paul everything that's been happening in the midst of this little group of people that was started as followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul is so, his spirits are so lifted, he grabs his his uh, pen or whatever it is. He, he grabbed his iPad and he started dictating a letter right away to encourage the group to teach them, clarify some points of doctrine. But I want to look with you at chapter one this morning and we're going to work through it and see what Paul had to say to them why he considered this church to be a model church even though it was a fledgling new church, and what we can learn from that. And, and, and basically, just to give you a summary before we get into it, Paul looks at three things in this chapter. It's very basic, very simple. He looks at their expressions of the reality of Jesus Christ in their lives, and then Paul looks at the past and how they responded to Jesus Christ. And then finally, he looks at their continuing influence. We're going to work through it, but I want to draw from this three uh, basic principles that are applicable for us today, our church and our individual lives today. And you have in your bulletins, if you're so inclined, a little fill in the blank if you'd like to. And uh, I tried to highlight these on the slides. Very simple. Our first point comes from verses 1 through 3 of First Thessalonians 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to First Thessalonians 1. And we'll look first at verses 1 through 3. And here we see that the church above all, is to be characterized by an active manifestation of godly virtues. In other words, the Holy Spirit is in us and should be making a difference and manifesting the life of Christ through us. And we see that here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that was the missionary team, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father. Now I'm reading the New International Version today, and I think it helps a little bit to understand what Paul is saying here. I continue. Remember, uh, continually remembering, uh, remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really interesting. We as Christians can be known for a lot of different things. And unfortunately in the world, sometimes we're known more by, by what we're against and what we preach against. And that's all well and good. But it's interesting to me that Paul highlights here three very positive uh, qualities that the Holy Spirit had been producing in the lives of these people who were part of this church. And it's something that Paul highlights many times in his letters. Faith, love, and hope. And we can look at each one of those just briefly, just to think through it with you. It's a faith, it's interesting, it's a faith that, that, that is uh, productive. 
that is beneficial. It does something. It says in my text, it's the work produced by faith. So it's faith in Jesus Christ, and we believe that it's faith and faith alone that saves a person, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that faith that saves us is a faith that makes a difference in our lives. It's useful. And it's interesting that Peter also says in his letter that it's a faith that's useful to the extent that society recognizes that we are good people doing good things to benefit the society around us. It's very interesting. So this is the first point I would like to make to you, what Paul saw in the Thessalonians, what he was grateful for. He was grateful that their faith was not just an intellectual assent, an agreement to certain doctrines. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. He is my Lord and Savior. And Paul might say, and so what? Is it making a difference in your life? And he was so grateful with this church, it truly was making a difference. They were doing something. They were serving. But it's interesting that Paul follows this up by talking about the motivation for service. Because you can serve with the wrong motivation completely. And he says, not only am I thankful for the work produced by your faith, but also the labor prompted by your love. You... <clears throat> He uses a word of intense service here, labor. You are serving sacrificially, but you are not just doing it out of obligation. Oh, somebody's got to do it, so I'll do it. Paul says, what I'm thankful for is that all that you are doing is prompted, motivated by love. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ and love for other people, for your fellow believers and for the people of the world. You understand as well as I do how this can happen, how we can easily fall in any ministry that we do into the rut of just doing things, and it's not really motivated by the love that we have for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the people around us. But Paul was so grateful with this group who had just gotten started out, he noticed in them, and the reports came back to him. This is a group that has put their faith into action, and they are motivated by love. They are so much in love with Jesus Christ that this work flows out of their lives. It's just a natural thing. But then what do you do? You're doing the work of the Lord, motivated by love, and you run into obstacles like was probably the case in Thessalonica. It was not an easy environment to live in. They faced persecution. They faced immorality. It was difficult. I talk about in Portugal, 1% of the population being evangelical Christian. Probably in Thessalonica, it was maybe point. Uh, <laughs> 0.00001% of the people that were evangelical Christian. It was very difficult. So how do they keep going? Paul says, I notice in you not only that your faith is producing works and you're motivated by love, but I also notice your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what kept them going in the difficult times. Why did they keep doing what they were doing? Because they had a sure and steadfast hope 
because they knew their sins were forgiven. They knew they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They knew he died and rose again. He was coming back for them. They had all this tremendous hope, and they knew in the midst of this world that is in crisis, we know that we can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and put our hands, put our lives in his hands. That's a fantastic thing. Do you see what this church was known for? Paul doesn't talk about here so much about their phenomenal growth or uh, maybe the great preacher that he left behind or any of this kind of thing. Paul focuses on three very important qualities, and without these qualities, we really are not demonstrating Christ to the world. We can be doing a lot of things, but these Three basic qualities are of absolute importance. Faith that is put to work and does something, motivated by love, and that keeps going in the face of opposition because we are solidly grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. My second point is that all of this, it's all nice, but we have to admit something. Other people in the world are like this too except the basis is a little different. In other words, I will not stand up here today and pretend to tell you that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're the only ones to do good in the world. Well, that's silly. That's foolish. We know that's not true. There are a lot of people that do good in the world, but what's the difference? The difference is that for us, this manifestation of godly virtues is rooted in a positive response to the gospel message. We have a relationship with a person, and that person lives in us and is making a difference. Look at this with the Thessalonian church. He says, verse 4, Brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you. We know that because of the qualities that exist in you, but we know it because of something else. Because he's going to explain, when we preach the gospel to you, we notice something different. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. These messengers were genuine messengers. You see, what happened with the Thessalonian church, when they heard the gospel proclaimed, it wasn't just like we learn about from one of the cities in the book of Acts, the city where uh, in Athens everybody liked the newest ideas, and they liked discussing and talking about, oh, that's very interesting, and that's a nice philosophy you have, and there's many religions in the world, and all that, blah, blah, blah. But what this group decided was what we're hearing from this man, we believe is the word of God for us. And that's what made all the difference. And how did they come to that conclusion? Paul makes very clear it was because the Holy Spirit was at work in them and produced this deep inner conviction in their lives to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, uh, dear uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you are involved in outreach. It's great, but we must remember something. When we talk about the gospel, if the Holy Spirit is not in it, we're just talking. It's just words. And you can be 
the most persuasive person in the world and have great eloquence and pretty speech and all that goes along with that. But the person who makes the difference in the hearer is the Holy Spirit of God. And if he is not at work, all of our talk is falling on deaf ears. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts and brings people to an understanding of their own sinfulness and their need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we need to be in prayer and much prayer for the people we're working with that God would open their hearts. But, you know, the preachers themselves had a conviction that something was going on. I think this goes two ways here. Not only did Paul notice in their lives a conviction that he was preaching the word of God, but sometimes the preacher himself gets a certain inner conviction. He knows that something is happening in this group, and he saw it. And one of the remarkable things that took place, look with me at verse 6. We're not done this point yet, because we already saw three important qualities. What were they? Faith and love and hope. But now watch what happened in verse 6 when they responded to the gospel. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. And you can go back to Acts 17 and see the context. The suffering was severe. They knew that they would pay for their faith, their decision to follow Jesus Christ. But he says in spite of severe suffering, what did they do? You welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. That can't be produced, humanly speaking. This is fantastic. Their faith in Jesus Christ was not based on circumstances. Paul didn't go in there and say, Trust Jesus, you'll have a happy life. You'll be free from pain and suffering. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that Paul said to the new Christians over and over, it is through many trials and tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. So this group was ready. The Holy Spirit had prepared them. And how did they respond? It wasn't just, uh, yeah, okay, I guess I believe, and yeah, it makes sense. No, they responded with tremendous joy that came from the Holy Spirit. And they knew the consequences. They knew that if I walk this way instead of that way, society's going this way and I go this way, I'm in for a lot of trouble. But in spite of that, in the midst of it, the Holy Spirit was producing joy in their lives. It's tremendous. You see what's happening here. What are they known by? Faith. Love, hope, joy. These things are a tremendous testimony to the world. I used to have a professor in uh, my days in seminary, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and uh, he would always say to us, men, don't lose the joy. Because he knew the reality of it. We start the semester full of joy, and then we get our syllabi, and the joy, oh boy, how am I going to get all this work done? And then as the semester goes on, you feel like you're plodding along. Oh, I can't take it. Oh, this is too much. And he would say to us at certain points like that, man, you know why you're here. 
You're here to know the Lord and Savior better. Don't lose the joy. Keep your perspective. And we've got to do the same. Yes, there's a lot of things in this world. You wake up in the morning, you turn the news on, you look at the newspaper, you shake your head, and you wonder, how is this world going to survive? But there's a joy that we have that other people don't have because we know personally the Lord of history, the one who came and died and rose again. And Paul says in verse 7, what I said in the beginning, and so... You, Thessalonians, you actually became a model, an example, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. God is doing such a wonderful work in you. Now other groups are looking at you and admiring what God has done in your midst. And remember, I'm not talking about a big group here of people. This is most likely a very tiny group of believers. But now, because of what the Spirit of God is producing in them, other groups are beginning to notice. And wow, look at what God is doing in this group of people in Thessalonica. So my last point. So where does all this lead us? Well, this testimony of a life that's changed, transformed by the gospel, is a powerful witness to others. This testimony of a life changed by the gospel is a powerful witness to others. And look at how Paul concludes here. This is fantastic. The Lord's uh, message, verse 8, rang out from you. Rang out. That's an interesting uh, picture. Kind of like a symbol clashing. Too bad I don't have symbols up here. We could get your attention. Symbol clashing or a trumpet blast for everyone to hear. The message rang out. Now, what's interesting to me is how did it ring out? Was it because they sent out gospel preachers? In this case, no. He says the message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, their part of the world, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So what is it that people noticed about this group? Why is it so remarkable? Paul continues, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. It's like everywhere Paul goes now, people are talking about, man, did you hear what God did in the city of Thessalonica? It's crazy, man. It's remarkable. And he goes here in verse 9, Again, he focuses on three things here. Uh, faith and love are implicit, but hope is very explicit. It's so important to the Christian life. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you, number one, you turned to God from idols, and then to serve the living and true God. Let's just stop there for a minute. So, they turned away from their idol worship, and this is no small thing. In that day, it was a big deal. The Romans and Greeks had lots of different gods, and you didn't want to offend any of the gods. And people were afraid of offending the gods. And so this group of people decided, no, we're not going to worry about that. We're courageous. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. We're going to follow him. We're leaving all this old way of life behind us. 
But that's not good enough. What did they do? They not only left the old life behind, what did they do? They did it to serve the living and true God. Do you see the balance here? It's not just reject the old way of life. I want to leave my sinful, self-centered life. They now have a life with new purpose, new meaning, because they are serving and living for the God, the living creator, God of the universe. And, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. They knew it, right? They knew, this is what Paul already mentioned this, but now Paul is saying other people are talking about this. They know this is true of you. In the midst of this topsy-turvy world that we live in, they see in you that you have a hope that is solidly anchored in Jesus Christ. Well, what do we want our church to be known for? What do we as believers want to be known for? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very careful now. We're living in a context of, uh, of hate. And I've not we've noticed that more coming back this time than any other home assignment. As we came back to the United States, we noticed the atmosphere of hate brewing in our country. And Christians can sometimes fall into that trap by the rhetoric we have, the language we use, by the way we look at people. But what do we really want to be known for as the church of Jesus Christ? Is it just what we are against? And don't misunderstand. The Bible is the Bible, and I believe in the Bible, and there is sin we need to preach against. But above all, we should be known by the difference, the transforming grace of God in our lives, the faith that is producing a difference in our lives, the fact that we are motivated by love, love for Jesus first, love for other people, the fact that we have a hope solidly grounded in Jesus Christ that keeps us going, and a joy that is overflowing in our lives because we know that we have the best of everything. And, uh, and what are you trusting in, by the way? I don't know how you feel about the election and the results of the election, and I don't want to get into that and cause a big stir here, but I just want to tell you one thing. Your hope does not depend on the elections. Okay? Your hope is solidly grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. You know the end of the story. You know who is the victor. You know that your life is solidly kept in his powerful hands. And Jesus Christ is able to use any circumstance to get his gospel message out. And what the world really needs at this point, this world in crisis, is to see lives that have been and are being transformed by the grace of God. The world needs to see we are different. And it's not just something we preach, something we talk about. You know, it's not just something we keep as a secret here inside the sanctuary. 
and we go, boy!" and encourage each other. But when we walk out the doors, we understand I have to live differently because I represent Jesus Christ. He is in me. He wants to live his life through me. I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And so I can walk by faith that produces works and be motivated by love and have that tremendous hope that clings to the hope of the resurrection and be filled with joy. It's tremendous. So let me ask you a few questions here just in closing, just to help you think about it. What about us? I mean, this kind of a passage, we shouldn't look at this example and just say, hey, that's a neat historical example. That's really cool that that church was able to do it. I think when we read a passage of Scripture like this, it helps us evaluate our own lives and our own ministries. And so... What kind of reputation do we have in our community? What do we want our church to be known for? Would the people who know us in our church evaluate us in the same way? Can they see the differences that Jesus makes in our lives? Can they see that something has actually happened can they observe the evidences of faith and hope and love? Can they see the deep joy in the midst of the difficulties of life? Can it be said of us that we have turned from a life focused on self to a life in service of the living and true God? And we have to start with our own lives as we reflect on these questions. It's not going to do us any good, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I know the tendency. I was a pastor a long time before becoming a missionary in Portugal. And there, by the way, they're the same there as we are here. It's not going to do us any good to sit in the pew this morning and think, yeah, brother, preach it. I wish that guy next to me would get with it. Right? If we want, do you know what? It's very simple. If we want a church that's different, and this is for any church. I'm not just talking to Bethlehem. If we want a church that's different, the Lord has to start with me because the, the church is composed of individuals, and I'm one of them. Somebody said the joke one time, a person's grumbling and complaining about the church. So, oh, man, I don't like that church. I'm going to go... That church is full of sinners and hypocrites and all the rest of this. And I'm going to go find another church. And his friend says to him, well, I don't think that's a good idea because when you go to the other church, you'll be taking a sinner and a hypocrite with you. So we forget that. You know, it's, it's me. It's me. I'm responsible. So before we think about somebody else, I really would like you to go home today and think, God, what would you like to do with my life? How can I be a contributing factor for your glory within this church, through this church, so that really a difference is being made? How is it that you want to transform my life? And, and all of us are dealing with different things. But we have to come before Jesus Christ in humility and ask him for his grace in all this. John Stutt, an author that I've come to appreciate very, very much over the years, who is now with the Lord. 
John Stott reminds us as he reflected on this passage of two important truths that emerge from this passage. And I thought this was nice and I'd like to share it with you. The first is that the church which receives the gospel must pass it on to others. It's our sacred duty. And did you notice the progression here? In, in verse 5, just three verbs that I want to highlight. Verse 5 says, our gospel came to you. And in verse 6, it says, you welcome the message. And then in verse 8, it says, the message rang out. That's, that's how it should always be. The, the message came to you. It re, re, you. You were convinced of its truth, and you welcomed it. And then it made a difference, and the message rang out from you as other people were able to see what had happened. But then he goes on to say this, the second truth, and this is very important, don't miss this. The church which passes the gospel on must embody it. You understand what that means? That means it's not good enough just to talk it, we have to live it. People must not only hear the message of the gospel, but also see the reality of it in our lives the, the, we, the people who claim to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, it, the, the, our lives, let me put it this way, it's like the gospel, it, it's, it's the words, the saving message about Jesus Christ. And our lives adorn that message. It's like the music of the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? Music can be, can, can be inviting, attractive. It can beautify something. Can you imagine sometimes, and I know modern artists are into this. I don't appreciate it personally, but sometimes, you know, you have an orchestra and there's a lot of dissonance, and the sounds just don't seem to come together. And I know that's more contemporary and postmodern and all that. It's not my cup of tea. You know, it kind of, we listen to it and we go, it doesn't sound right, you know? Or somebody's way off key, you know, and you, it, it kind of hurts your ears. And I think it's that way also with our proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes we're saying the right words, but the lives we live cause dissonance in people's ears. And they can't really see Jesus Christ because they're stumbling over my life. You see what, what, what I'm saying? I don't want to end today without saying also, uh, I, I, you know, there, there may very well be here in our midst this morning, maybe you are a person who has never, there's an urgency to what we're saying in this text before us. And you may be someone here this morning, you cannot say, honestly, that if you were to die today on your way out of this church, on the road somewhere, this afternoon, whatever, this week, you cannot say with all integrity, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I am going to be with Jesus for all eternity. There is wrath coming, according to this passage, God's wrath against the sin of humanity, that sin of rebellion, that sin of rejecting God and his way. Wrath is coming, and this passage teaches us that there is only one person who can save us from that wrath, 
and that is Jesus Christ that God raised from the dead, that he sent to die for our sins and raised him from the dead to reign victorious now. I just want to invite you. There are people here that can talk with you. I'd be happy to as well. I'm inviting you to respond today. It's very simple to confess that you are a sinner and you understand your need, that you cannot, there's no amount of good works that you can do to somehow earn favor with God. That's not what I'm saying at all. I said that good works flow out of your relationship with God, but it doesn't earn you favor. The only thing you can do to resolve the problem, to escape the wrath of God against sin, is to put your confidence fully in Jesus Christ, who came, was born of a virgin, died for you on the cross, taking all your sins upon himself, suffering your penalty in your place. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will also forgive you of your sins. And you can experience that same type of life that we're seeing here in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 1, a life that is full of faith and love and hope and joy, a life of purpose and meaning, in spite of all that's going on around us. Because we have an anchor, right, that holds us safe and secure. Let's just uh, pray real quickly, and I know the worship team will be coming up to lead us, and we'll also be thinking about the harvest offering. But let's ask God for his help. Father, we do uh, ask you humbly today to help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, uh, Father, sometimes our attention gets, um, we get distracted and um, we start to believe that success is something other than what you consider it in your eyes. And I pray, Lord, just very simply, that you would help us to be people that are allowing you to transform our lives so that the reputation would go out to the world. Hey, these are people that really do know Jesus Christ, and he's making a difference. Help us, God. Give us the grace that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.